It's the 12th of March, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we've got a lot of questions from listeners in our talkback section. We'll end with that. First, I want to remind you, we're one week away from Room Now Live. Go to RoomNow.live to register. A truly memorable meeting is just a week away. But first, a word from our sponsor. The world of medical education has certainly changed, but you know what hasn't changed? That's right, Room Now Live. We're in our third year of doing both a live on-site meeting and a live streaming broadcast to the many who'd rather stay at home. So Room Now Live is a lot more than education your way. Listen in. At the end of the podcast, we'll tell you how so. So let's start with, I thought, something that we hear about, but we don't know much about, and that's fibroscans for liver disease in RA patients. This is a fairly small study, 75 patients on methotrexate for greater than three years. Again, many years actually uh, overall for most of these patients. They all had prospective fibroscans looking for liver disease. Um, In in that cohort, only 16% had what was thought to be an abnormal fibroscan, which is a value greater than 7.1%. KPA, I have no idea what KPA means. Um, Only three of those 12 had uh, what they might consider severe uh, liver disease with numbers of 9.5 to 12.5, and only one within the cirrhosis range. They, in this study, said that uh, the higher scores were associated with um, greater doses of methotrexate. This has actually been studied in other studies where methotrexate and methotrexate dosing did not correlate with FibroScan results. They said overall LFT abnormalities were not predictive of FibroScan results. And we do know that the ACR guidelines are predicated on persistently abnormal LFTs uh, as the indicator for uh, a a liver biopsy. So based on this data, I would say FibroScans are a gigantic waste of time. They're left to the hepatologists who when they don't want to be invasive, they do fibroscans. When they want to be invasive, they do liver biopsies. Uh, I can't condone this. I don't think we should be looking at this any further. Um, a nice study came out about Stills disease. Uh, this is 122 patients from China who were followed prospectively up to three years. And they found that over 20% of their patients had relapses, meaning flares of their disease activity. The flare rate was 29% at 36 months. Now, my problem with this is, as you know, Stills disease is an intermittent disease in some people. But uh, as the world's expert in Stills disease, I tell my patients who ask, well, how long am I going to be sick? How long am I going to be on these medicines? I say, I don't know. Most flares will last eight months to eight years, meaning that that's how long you're going to need therapy. The acute onset of disease, very systemic, febrile, uh, rashes, high white counts, high acute phase reactants, you know, that stays that way until you treat them and they go into drug-induced remission. doesn't mean that they're in remission. If you take away the drugs, the disease comes back. So I have a problem with these flare rates, but it sounds about right, and it does underscore the need for watching for flares in patients with Stills disease. I think the important takeaway in their study was that flares were more likely in patients treated with what they called intensive therapy, um, and it really wasn't intensive, or in those who had MAS, MAS, macrophage activation syndrome, 
a deadly complication for systemic JIA does occur in adults and in kids and is a, a marker for more severe disease. They said intensive treatment was anyone on high dose steroids plus a DMARD or plus etoposide, which is treatment for MAS. What they're really saying here is not using a biologic was associated with more flares. And right now, I think biologics, IL-1 inhibition, sometimes IL-6 inhibition is the standard of care in Stills disease. Uh, and we've always talked about the influence of education and socioeconomic status on outcomes in RA. Uh, a nice meta-analysis came out this week of 45 studies, over 175,000 individuals looking at the association between chronic pain and socioeconomic status. And not surprisingly, those who are in the lower socioeconomic uh, levels and, and in the mid-levels had a higher risk of chronic pain, either a 32% higher risk in the lowest of, of categories or a 16% in with medium socioeconomic status level. Now, the question always has been, these associations with worse disease, now more pain, um, is why? And, and there are studies out there in RA that say that it's not simply an access issue. Um, access then translates to whether they got help, whether they were educated enough to get help. You know, there are a lot of things with, uh, that uh, underpin the access issue. I don't think it's always access. I think there are other factors here, and I don't think it's knowledge per se or um, income per se. So it's really hard to say. I've, I've always thrown out the wild card. Maybe it's because you're in this group that you have the world's worst diet, and this is maybe a microbiome issue that's adding to one's disease status and maybe even chronic pain. There's a lot to be learned here. Maybe the thing that you should take away is Patients who don't have higher levels of education and who are um, uh, underprivileged financially are the ones who you should worry about the most. So um, two rare disease uh, studies this week, one on Takayasu's, one on Kawasaki's. A cohort study of um, 142 Takayasu arteritis patients showed that it's really rare, is 0.8 per million per year as an incidence rate. Um, those patients, because of their vascular inflammation, had a higher overall all-cause mortality rate, and most of that mortality was related to cardiovascular disease, specifically ischemic heart disease, stroke, uh, TIAs, cardiovascular um, uh, disease, I guess that's a general term, peripheral vascular disease, but an interesting, interestingly not uh, hypertension or heart failure or diabetes. Uh, meaning that those were not contributors to um, the uh, all-cause mortality risk. The other interesting thing about this particular analysis was that when they looked at these patients who are at significantly higher risk, um, that there's less than half of them are taking uh, statins or um, antiplatelet therapies, which would be indicated given the diagnosis. Kawasaki's disease, uh, a much another vascular condition, very different, large vessel. This is now um, more small vessel disease um, or medium-sized vessel disease, I, I guess I should say, um, that 8,400 patients were analyzed, and they showed that there was a difference in how the disease manifests in younger kids versus older kids. Younger kids, I guess, would be um, uh, under age five, and olders would be older than age five. Uh, younger kids had more incomplete Kawasaki's uh, disease, more coronary artery aneurysms, while the older patients had a greater delay in the diagnosis. As you know, the MISC syndrome associated with COVID 
is mainly seen in older kids, um, more so than younger, more typical Kawasaki-like presentations. Speaking of COVID, you can't go very far without having more COVID discussions. So there was a, um, a recovery trial in the UK. It's a recovery trial is looking at many different drug interventions in patients who are hospitalized with COVID. That's where the dexamethasone data came from that said that dexamethasone is very effective in, in hospitalized COVID patients. They looked at colchicine in that cohort. And you know, we have actually reported twice on two different studies giving favorable reviews to colchicine being used in outpatient COVID patients, pre-hospitalized COVID patients, maybe even earlier COVID patients. In this study, who were hospitalized COVID patients, the study was closed prematurely by the Data Safety Monitoring Board, showing a lack of benefit um, as far as preventing death when colchicine was used. They've had the same 28-day mortality compared to those who received usual care, and that was 20% versus 19%, suggesting that starting colchicine in people who are in the hospital with COVID doesn't make any sense. That's what we said all along. This is a timing issue. If you're going to use colchicine, you probably should use it in someone uh, who is an outpatient um, and use that as a way of, of reducing inflammasome activation and IL-1 and IL-18 production. So uh, another COVID report, there are a few this week that were, I thought were very important. COVID-related deaths due to rheumatic disease. Uh, this appeared in, I think it was rheumatology. Uh, a very interesting mix. The usual things you'd expect, things we said before. We said that rheumatic patients in general do really well. The ones who don't do well are the ones who have comorbidities, just like the other population. The ones who don't do well who have, are those who have autoimmune disease and have disease activity um, that's not controlled. In this study, they also showed that in addition to comorbidities and age and usual things, that risk factors for death from COVID included rituximab, a fourfold higher risk, sulfazalazine, a 3.6-fold higher risk, immunosuppressant use specifically uh, at a two-fold higher risk for drugs like azathioprine, cyclophosphamide, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, or tacrolimus. On the other hand, all other biologics and drugs you usually um, use do not have an effect on the risk of death with COVID. Again, it's not really clear why rituximab is on that list. Sulfazalazine is probably on that list because it's ineffective and not a great disease control measure. Sulfa, the other immunosuppressants might be on that list because for the same reason rituximab, maybe you only use it in your worst patients and maybe it's your worst patients who really are at higher risk of COVID death. Interesting study, it's with Ferris reading. A low risk of anaphylaxis with COVID vaccines. You know, the data that came out with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine said that the risk was somewhere around 2.5 to 11 per million doses of the COVID vaccine, suggesting anaphylaxis was really rare. This particular study comes from two hospitals in Boston, um, I think the Brigham and the Mass General, looking at over 65,000 uh, employees who received their first dose of, a, of an mRNA vaccine. So that means either Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. They showed that overall the rate of allergic reactions was about 2%. And of course, that's based on following people with surveys and whatnot afterwards. But um, they did show that, the, that there were a few cases of anaphylaxis, as these are proven by criteria to have uh, life-threatening anaphylaxis. There were no deaths. The rate was 2.5 per 10,000 patients. So it's not that common. It's actually quite uncommon. Um, and so the uh, thing that you need to know about that is that most of this occurred in women. Most of these occurred within 15 or 20 minutes of the administration, which is why patients who get vaccinated need to sit and be observed for a short period. 
Uh, and up to a third of these patients had a prior history of anaphylaxis, and two-thirds of those who were affected with anaphylaxis had a prior strong allergy history. So patients with really severe allergies, patients with prior anaphylaxis, that may be a contraindication to receiving this particular vaccine. The CDC this week came out with guidance on what to do once you're COVID vaccinated. This applies to you and me and, and your patients. The bottom line is that fully vaccinated COVID patients can get together and congregate in small groups um, without risk, without masking, without distancing, uh, and that there's going to be low risk. Likewise, you as a person who has been vaccinated can meet with other low risk groups uh, in small groups, especially outdoors without any risk. They do recommend that you still maintain um, masking and social distancing and hand washing for people who are at higher risk or when you're in populations where you're, there's an unknown risk. So still, you need to wear a mask and you still need to um, social distance. Uh, they continue to recommend avoiding large gatherings. Um, uh, they do recommend uh, getting tested if you are having symptoms of COVID-19. Uh, they did recommend that if you are exposed to someone who had COVID and you are asymptomatic that you do not, do not need and you've been uh, vaccinated, you do not need to quarantine. Um, uh, they do recommend that you uh, follow some of the guidelines out there about travel. So these are all important new considerations with regard to how you're going to protect yourself. So we had, uh, I think, three or four questions. One comes from Evan um, um, Leibowitz. Uh, he sent me an email, and he has a patient who's a 59-year-old who has a history of LGL, large granulocyte, um, uh, large granular lymphocytic leukemia, LGL leukemia, who's had problems with splenomegaly and pancytopenia and leukopenia. Uh, and then out of nowhere, the patient um, develops RA. But first, before she gets RA, she does have a history of, of, of serious hospitalizations for diverticulitis that was complicated. Uh, nonetheless, um, she later on develops rheumatoid arthritis with polyarthritis, uh, rheumatoid factor and CCP being strongly positive. CC CRP was normal, but ESR was 70. At the time that he's seeing the patient, the patient needs treatment. The white count is 1.3. The platelets are 75,000. The hemoglobin is 10. The question is, what drugs do you use to treat the rheumatoid arthritis? Um, and so right off the bat, there's a, the, the, these patients have been seen. Um, there's literature out there about them getting gold or methotrexate or cyclophosphamide with variable, if not low, levels of success, but not much in the way of complications. Um, more recent data suggests a lot of the reports about rituximab and potentially the use of the JAK inhibitors, but because of this person's um, serious history of diverticulitis, you would like to avoid a JAK inhibitor or a TIC inhibitor until you've exhausted all other opportunities. Uh, you can use methotrexate in these people, but the guideline here would have to be with a white count of 1.3 and you know an ANC that's like, I don't, I don't know if it was 500 or less. Um, you do need to follow this patient with the oncologist who's going to have to use growth factors to stimulate that white count to get up uh, until you can control inflammation so that LG, the LGL will go into better control and the white count will start to creep up. I would recommend using methotrexate. I would recommend putting this patient on rituximab. That's where the preponderance of evidence is. The other safe drug that should be considered here would be abatacept. I can't stress enough that the patient also um, be followed very closely with your colleague, the hematologist. We have two more um, talkback 
um, recordings. Let's hear from Dr. Art Weinstein. Hey, Art. Let's see what he has to say. Hello, Jack. This is Arthur Weinstein, your old colleague from California. My question is regarding COVID vaccination. In people who've had COVID themselves and have antibodies and other immunity to COVID, has the vac is it, theoretically the vaccination can induce a serum sickness-like reaction since you're gonna make the antigen and you already have antibodies. So Art brings up a really good point. Why not, if you're giving a vaccine that's gonna manufacture all those spike proteins and someone's had an infection and has antibodies, will they not get serum sickness? The interesting thing here is it's listed as a potential side effect, but really it hasn't been reported thus far. Certainly we've got millions of patients who've been infected uh, and now we've got millions who've actually been vaccinated and this seems like it's not been a problem. Serum sickness is certainly a problem in patients who receive vaccines. It's been seen with rabies vaccine and even influenza vaccine. Again, fever, rash, polyarthritis, polyarthritis coming on after the vaccination. But the good news is it hasn't happened. I think it's a potential side effect, but uh, it hasn't happened thus far. Maybe that's uh, um, all we need to know at this point. Here's another uh, call from uh, Kylie Totter. Hi, my name is Kylie Totter. I'm a rheumatologist in Rhode Island. My question is about COVID-19 vaccination and timing of rituxan treatment. I have a 60-year-old female with seropositive erosive nodular rheumatoid arthritis who is in a state of low disease activity, finally on rituxan every four months. She is eligible for COVID-19 vaccination and is hesitant as am I to hold her rituxan as the guidelines would suggest due to concern for disease flare. And I was curious to get um, Dr. Kush's opinion regarding timing of the vaccination um, and what he would do in this situation. Thanks, Kylie. Um, so again, a woman with rheumatoid arthritis doing well, we presume, on rituximab every four months and now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, there's a few important um, takeaways here. Um, when trying to decide whether or not to hold the vaccine, hold the rituximab so you can give the vaccine, and that whole argument, it's very clear. Disease activity trumps vaccination, meaning if the patient needs the rituximab and you can't delay rituximab, uh, give the rituximab and get the vaccination at a later date when the disease is under control by that drug or by other drugs. That's really important. The second issue is um, timing. And um, I'm a little concerned that this patient's on Q4 months rituximab for rheumatoid arthritis. I did a lot of the rituximab trials. The, uh, my use of rituximab is every 12 months and rarely every six months. If you're using it less than every six months, you need another biologic because it's really not necessary to use it less than every six months. In vasculitis, there is a rationale for it, um, but I still have a problem with that. Again, the way the drug works is it depletes your, your, your B cells and they're down for about six months in almost everyone. 
uh, and then there's a slow return. Hence, most patients only need to be treated every 12 months. Every six months, all right, we can, I can allow that. The package insert says that you can take rituximab every six months or 12 months, and then there's a proviso in there, something about four months, but I think that's meant largely for the, the vasculitis patients. Uh, so I would argue if you're on every four months, maybe you shouldn't be on rituximab. But the bottom line is this, if the patient's well-controlled, yes, you, I, I say you wait six months and then you vaccinate uh, and you could follow CD, CD19 positive B cells or immunoglobulin levels as your, your evidence as to when to vaccinate. Um, but I generally say wait six months after rituximab, vaccinate, and then wait two to four weeks and then restart the rituximab. That's the regimen I would use. But again, um, if she's not well controlled uh, or barely well controlled on Q4 months, A, give the Q4 months rituximab and consider another drug for the future. Anyway, that's it for this week. Be sure to check in uh, for roomnow.live next Saturday. Um, thanks for viewing. We'll talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We know you're going to enjoy Room Now Live 2021. It's going to be held on the 20th and the 21st of March in beautiful downtown Fort Worth. This meeting is unlike any other because we have pre-learning, learning, and post-learning. We have shorter, more concise lectures. It's really hard to give short lectures. Our faculty are struggling, but they're doing it because we know it's the better way to learn. There's more time for discussion. We are going to spend at least 30% of our total programming time on Q&A between you, the audience, and our expert key opinion leaders who are being brought in because of their excellence in education and research and leadership in rheumatology. This is going to be a great virtual experience. It's going to be even better experience for those who attend live. Um, our meetings are unique in that we have these really short lectures called step lectures. They're meant to be like TED Talks, somewhat inspirational, somewhat of a mini lecture. Uh, we hope that you'll join us and join the discussion. This is a meeting designed to change your mind and change your practice. Great rheumatologists like us go to great meetings like this.